Good morning, church. God is good, amen. How many have been blessed so far? Have you been blessed so far? Let me hear you say amen. 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 I've been blessed so far. Uh, as you know in your program, you notice that there's that doorway to ministry. We started a doorway to ministry here, and every Sabbath, just highlighting different ministries because we believe that every member is a minister, a pastor with a gift that God has called you to. And the Bible says, he has given us several gifts to several people, so, to each person. So now you may not have not only one, but you have several gifts. Actually, the Bible says everyone has several gifts. So you're here, we're only here on a journey to discover what is the gifts that God has called us to. And that's why we started that doorway to ministry segment uh, for your benefit. I think to me that's the best part of the whole service because that's really what church is really about. The, um, all of us here and the members discovering your ministry that God has called you to and actually um, doing that ministry that God has called you to do. And that's a really blessing to, to see that. Um, the sermon this morning, I invite you to turn to me to John chapter 8, verse 44 in your Bibles. John chapter 8, verse 44 in your Bibles. And we continue on the series entitled, The Ultimate Love Story. The Ultimate Love Story. John chapter 8, verse 44. And the sermon entitled this morning, it's entitled, Love Feels. Love Feels. When you think of God, what do you see? What do you think about? Not Jesus, but God, I'm talking about God the Father. When you think about God the Father, what do you see? What are you thinking about? Is he mean? Is he distant? Is he stern? If we take a poll this morning, where were you thinking? How many of you think of Jesus, you think of someone who's loving and merciful and kind? Let me see your hands. Okay. How many, think, how many out there see see Jesus in the Godhead, seeing Jesus as um, more loving and kind than the Father. How many see that? You see Jesus that way? How many see God the Father and Jesus as being equal in love? How many see that? Okay, good. When you look at God, what do you see? Is he as Aristotle made him out to be the unmoved mover. It is someone whom you just can't relate to because he's so unlike us. How do you see him to be? This morning I'd like to present to you that the picture of the Bible presents of God the Father is a picture that he is love here this morning, beloved. Amen? And because of this love, beloved, that I love him so much. So this morning may we be able to see through God's eyes the love that he has for you. And for me, let us pray. Father, as your word is open, we ask that your word may come alive and teach us and show us what you want us to learn is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever Satan speaks a lie, who is he really talking about? Notice the Bible says in verse 44, John chapter 8, the Bible says, you're, Jesus says, you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do, he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no, what does the Bible say? Truth where? In him. There's no truth in Satan. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of what? 
his own. For he is a what? A liar and a what? The father of lies. He's a liar and a father of lies. In other words, Satan speaks a lie. When he speaks a lie, he's speaking of who? Himself. So, in other words, whenever he speaks a lie, especially about God's character of love, what he's doing is he's projecting who he really is upon God the Father, right? And the Godhead. Do you see that? So, Satan, you know people do that, right? They speak a lot of gossip and lies and despair thing. And what they really do in all the negativity, a lot of times what they're doing is that this projecting their own evil character upon the other person who maybe or really is really good, right? And so that's what Satan is. And Jesus said that Satan projects the lies about, his, about God is really about who he really is. Now, if you are Satan, now we've learned so far that what is it that gives us the power to live a godly Christian life to, and to overcome sin in our lives? What is that secret power that we learn in the Bible? Does anyone remember what we've been studying about? What is it? Love. So love gives us the power to gain victory over sin and every sin in our life. Now, if you were Satan, this is say if you were Satan, and you knew that the only thing, and you knew this truth, and the only thing that would give people victory over your temptations was love, then, and about God's love, what would you actually do? What would you do? You'd what? You would spread every conceivable lie there is about who? About God, so that people wouldn't see his what? Love, and thus gain the victory over their sins and also wouldn't be faithful to him and serving him with all their heart, right? If that's what you, if you were Satan, that's what you would do. Now, you see every false doctrine and every false system of worship that was ever created out there was introduced for the sole purpose by Satan of making the whole story of God's love a lie. That's what his whole point is. You've seen the great controversy, right? So you look at the great controversy, Satan knows the power for all Christians is love. So his primary purpose in his whole world is for you to have a distorted picture of that love so you'll never see his love. And if he's accomplished that, then he'll get the church to be exactly what he wants them to be, which is Laodicea, right? Which is exactly what has happened. No movement, no fire, no ministries, no victories, no character of Christ. And so Satan has accomplished exactly what he wanted to do within his remnant church. And in order to understand the solution, we must look at the problem. So let's go back to Daniel, turn to Daniel chapter 2, verse 11. What did the religious leaders of Babylon say about their gods? Daniel chapter 2, verse 11, in your Bibles. Let's look at the religion called paganism this morning. Daniel chapter 2, verse 11. And let's see, what does paganism teach? What is the foundational doctrine of the pagan or false worship? Like paganism, an example, is like the Hawaiian worship system here in Hawaii. Like you had Madam Pele, you worship the goddesses and the gods. That's what paganism is. You worship false gods, spiritualism. So that's paganism. So what is it? Back then in Babylon, of paganism in Babylon, what was the foundational teaching of paganism back then? The Bible says in chapter 2, verse 11, when, they, when the king asked 
the religious leaders of paganism to decipher the dream that he had, and not only to decipher, but to tell him the dream he dreamed that he forgot about, how did they respond? They said this, King, it is a rare thing that the king requires, and there's none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is what? Not with flesh. You see, the religious leaders said this. They said, King, we can't tell you what you dream because the only people that know about the dream that you dreamt about was who? The, the gods. So the gods know everything and every, anything and everything, right? But the problem with the gods is that they are so far removed from us, they don't dwell with human flesh, humanity. They're so far away and so distant away that they do not communicate with humanity. Are you seeing that? So the foundation of this every false religion and the foundation of paganism is this, that God is so far away from us. He's so far removed from us. He does not communicate with us. So much so that he does not dwell with human flesh. And he and when someone so far away as God is so far away, it reveals that he doesn't really care about us. Now, the Babylonians did believe, and paganism does believe, in a creator God, because they believe in all these gods, but the demigods and everything, but they believe that there was a creator God who actually made all of these gods. But what happened was, they didn't worship this creator God because they believed that he was so far away from them that he didn't care about them. And in fact, they believe that this creator God was so far away that if he was to crush humanity, it would be no different than if we as humans would crush a worm. That's how they felt about this creator God in Babylon. Now, it was because this creator God was so far away, they felt, that they started inserting what they called demigods and priests in between this creator God, between the creator God and the human heart. And in a short time, it got so bad that people felt that they could not approach this creator God for the sympathizing touch of God. This is the religion of paganism. And this pagan religion was passed from Babylon to, what's the next country, nation that came after Babylon? Medo-Persia. And after Medo-Persia was what? Greece was passed down to Greece. And then after Greece was passed to what? Rome. And guess what Rome is called, the first phase of Rome? Pagan Rome, right? So the paganism was passed from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and this pagan religion was passed down to pagan Rome. That's what's paganism, pagan Rome. Now, let's turn to Revelation 13, verse 4 in your Bibles. Revelation 13, verse 4. Who was it that gave power to the papal beast? Okay, now there's a beast in Revelation 13, and this comes after the four nations that we talked about. But who gave the power to the papal beast, the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church? Who gave the power to the papacy? The Bible says in verse 4, and they worshipped, talking about um, the papacy, and they worshipped the, what is that word? Dragon. Dragon. Very good, dragon. This dragon which gave, what is that word? Power unto and authority unto what? The beast. 
So this beast, the papal beast, the papacy, and we studied this before, so you, you don't have to go there. But this papacy, this papal beast, received its power from the what? Dragon, right? Now, according to the Bible, what is, who is the dragon? Have you know Revelation 12? Satan, the devil, right? The serpent. So we know that the, ultimately behind everything is Satan giving the power and authority or the power that gave the power, the power that, that, was a, that was the power of pagan Rome was given and passed on to paper Rome. And this was the power that Satan gave. But who else is this dragon? Look at uh, Revelation chapter 12 in your Bibles, verse 4 and 5. Talking about Satan, his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, did cast into the earth, and, and they follow this. And the dragon stood before the what? Woman. Now, who, what does a woman represent in the Bible, by the way? Church. Okay, church. So, the dragon stood before the church, which was ready to be delivered for to devour or to kill her what? Child as soon as it was born. So, the, one, the, drag, the dragon wants to kill the child of this woman. And she brought forth a what? Man-child in verse 5. Now, who is the man-child according to the Bible? Do you know? Jesus. So this dragon was going to kill Jesus. Now, when was Jesus, when, as soon as he was born? When did this happen? Do you remember a story in the Bible, in the Gospels, anywhere in the Bible where it talks about uh, Jesus trying to be murdered when he was born? Do you remember that story somewhere in the Bible? Ah, Matthew 1. So what are they talking about Matthew? What happens? Where were they when they tried to kill Jesus? What, what, did, what happened? They what? What's, what town? Bethlehem, right? And they called the slaughter of the innocents. And who was sent to kill? Who was sent there? Was it the Jewish priests and the leaders? Who was it? Roman soldiers. Okay, so Roman soldiers are coming. And who was it that ordered the execution to kill all the babies under two in Bethlehem? Who was it? Herod, King Herod. And what nation did he represent, does King Herod represent? Ah, Rome. Pagan Rome. So this dragon that tries to kill Jesus Christ is represented symbolic of what nation? Pagan Rome. Do you see that? So and it makes sense because the, nation, the beast, go back to chapter 13, verse um, 4, it makes sense because they worship the dragon, which they worship the dragon. It makes sense because the, the nation that came before papal Rome was what nation? Pagan Rome. So this makes sense that pagan Rome gave its power to papal Rome, the beast. Now why is this important? Pagan Rome passed on its beliefs and teachings onto papal Rome or the papacy or the Roman Catholic Church. In other words, if you look at all the statues inside, one example, you look at the statues inside of the Roman Catholic Church. St. Peter. Where did he get that statue from? You look in history books. Who is St. Peter really in pagan Rome? The God of Jupiter. And so people are bowing down to these statues. St. Peter, when really they're worshiping the God of Jupiter. Are you following me? 
All the pagan religion was passed on from pagan Rome to paper Rome. A lot of the symbols and everything that you see, the obelisks, angs, and all these things that you see in the Roman Catholic Church, they got it from the worship of pagan gods, and they brought it into the, the Christian church. That that's where they got their power and authority from. But not only that, they got the whole system of the priesthood and the structure and the organization from pagan Rome. You see, pagan Rome passed on its religious powers of paganism to the Roman Catholic Church. And this power of paganism that Satan passed on to the papal Christian church was Satan's, this is Satan's ultimate creation to destroy people's perception that God is love. You see, it gets from bad, from Babylon, to worse to the Roman Catholic Church. In the last days, this is Satan's final act, his final creation. And from Babylon, it was a separation between God and man. That God is this, and God doesn't care. That God is not love. And God, it gets worse and worse and worse. And finding it to pagan Rome was bad with the Roman Empire. Then it goes to the papacy, and this is final Satan's grand, one of Satan's grand act, because there's one more nation that comes after in Revelation 13. But the second to the greatest final act that Satan has created, his ultimate creation, to destroy people's perception that God is love. And you will see that when you study it. You see, to papist Christians, God is a stern, distant judge, just like paganism, who is incapable of human sympathy or love. And the purpose of Christ as a mediator is to, me is to try as much as possible to touch God the Father's heart with the feelings of their needs in order to arouse his compassion. Follow me. So in other words, just like the pagan priests, they have Christ as a mediator to somehow touch the cords of God the Father's heart. So Jesus' purpose is there is to touch the heart because God the Father cannot feel like how... Jesus feels. Jesus is much closer to us. But the papacy goes, goes one step further. Not only can we not go to God, but we need a mediator who can, God doesn't feel like, feel, feel where we're at or understand us, but we also need, or they, they teach that we also need another mediator between Christ and ourselves. And those mediators are called the saints, the pope, the bishops, the priest, and the Virgin Mary. True? And thus you have all these mediators. In other words, there's steps. God is so far away, he doesn't dwell with human flesh. He's so way of out there that you need Christ to be a mediator. And then even Christ himself needs another mediator to allow us to go to Christ, and thus you need the Virgin Mary. You gotta say your prayers with your rosary. You gotta say your Hail Marys, right? You've been there. I came from, my family came from the Catholic Church. I totally understand, right? And God is a stern and just judge way out there, so far removed from every single one of us. Thus, under the disguise of Christianity. Under the Christianity. Now, in paganism, it made sense because there's a false religion. They're painting a false picture of God. He's far away. He doesn't dwell with us. He doesn't communicate with us. Pagan religion, like worshiping Pele. But here's the deception of Satan. Now he comes 
under the disguise of Christianity, right? Roman Catholic Christians. And he takes paganism, and he takes the same teachings, and he, he, and he covers and he clothes it under the disguise of Christianity that God is now far away. Same thing as paganism, right? He doesn't dwell with human flesh. You need a mediator of Christ, and then you need other more mediators. You need saints and the Pope, and you need the Virgin Mary to be your extra mediator between you and God. Are you following me? Thus, Satan, once again, the truth that God is love was once again destroyed in the name of Christianity. I want you to read this quote with me and your handout in your bulletin. This is actually from the Dark Ages. This is from the priests from the Dark Ages under the rule of the Holy Roman Empire where the Roman Catholic Church swayed the powers and ruled the world through the powers of the world. And this is a segment. It actually was more, but I'm just going to read you a portion of it. Actually, I'll read it to you, but there was actually a lot more. But this is what they taught, and this is what they were teaching, and a historian named Bucko in his book, History of Civilization, he wrote, a, he wrote this portion, and this is what they really believed about God the Father. Now, when you follow along, I'll read it to you. It says, They delighted... The pastor, the, the priest delighted in telling the hearers, this is talking about hell, by the way, and burning forever in hell. They delighted in telling the hearers that they would be roasted in great fires and hung up by their tongues. They were to be lashed with scorpions and see their companions withering and howling around them. They were to be thrown into boiling oil and scalding lead. A river of fire and brimstone, broader than the earth, was prepared for them, and that they were to be immersed, their bones, their lungs, and their liver were to boil. This is how they preached to the people. But never to be consumed. <laughs> at the same time, worms were to prey upon them, and while these were gnawing at the bodies, they were to be surrounded by devils, mocking and making pastime of their pains. This is what hell is like. That's what the, that's what the priests preached the sermons to the people in the Dark Ages, in the Roman Catholic Church. Such were the first stages of their suffering, and they were only the first for the tortures, besides being unceasing, would become gradually worse. Isn't that kind of sick in a sense, right? All this was the work of the God of the Scots clergy. God was the one that was doing this. It was not only his work, but it was his joy and pride. It was God's joy and pride that they would suffer like this. Are you seeing a false picture of God being created here? It was not only his work, but it was his joy and pride. For according to them, hell was created before man came into the world. Hell was created before man even came into the world, before even sin. The Almighty, they did not scruple to say, the Almighty had spent his previous leisure in preparing and completing this place of torture so that when the human race appeared, it might be ready for the reception. God Almighty took pleasure in creating hell so that when humans came, they would suffer for all eternity. Do you see the picture of paganism that came into the church in the Dark Ages? That's what happened. This was the type of God the papal Christian church promoted. 
You see, even in Jesus' day, Philip had thought that God the Father and Jesus Christ were different. And that's why Philip came to Jesus and he said, what did Philip say to Jesus? Jesus, show me what? The Father. And then how did Jesus respond to that? He said, haven't I been so long with you? If you have seen me, you have what? Seen the Father. You see, so back in the Jewish church, and God's chosen church in those days, God's remnant church at that time also believed that God the Father and Jesus Christ were different, that God the Father was not as kind, he was stern and mean, but Jesus, when he realized who he was, the Son of God, he realized that he was full of love. And what Jesus was saying here was this. Jesus said that God the Father and himself were of one and the same character, which was love. Amen? And that's what he came to reveal. Now, where is the word? Turn to Romans chapter 10, verse 8. Romans chapter 10, verse 8 in your Bibles. Where is the word? The Bible says, But what say it? The word is nigh you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, the Bible says. Now, who is the word, according to the Bible? Who is the word? John chapter 1, the word is the only begotten, right, of the Father, which is Jesus Christ is the Son. So the Bible is saying here, the word is near you. Now, in other words, if you substitute Jesus for the word, the Bible says here that Jesus, right, God is near us, right? God is near us, according to this text. In other words, Jesus is near us, even in our mouths and in our hearts. He is not far from any one of us. In fact, he dwells with human flesh, for his name was called Emmanuel, which means God with us, not God far away from us, beloved. Amen? And so the teaching of Jesus was that he was the Messiah, that God is with us, and he's not far, far away from us, so far removed, that he does not dwell with human flesh. But beloved, this morning, the word of God contradicts paganism. And even the, in the church of papal Rome, it teaches that God is not only near us, but God is even near us, even in our hearts and in our mouth this morning. I praise God for what a God. Amen? He's not far away and distant and removed and stern, but He is near and close to every single one of us here this morning. Now people say, how is it that God, does God really love us? Does God really love me? How does God love me with all of His heart? You know, there's so much people in this world, how can he love each individual, right? With all of his heart. You ever heard that before? Millions and billions of people, how can God love everyone the same, right? With 100% of his heart. Well, think about this. If I have my, do my daughter here, right? I love her with 100% of my heart. Now, what happens when you have two children? Do you just love one child, now there's two, you have to divide it in half, and now you only love 50% for one child, and only 50% of your heart with the other child. Is that true? No. When you have two children, you love that one child with 100% of your heart, right? And you love the other child with 100% of your heart, right? Then cannot God also, with millions of people in the world and all throughout history, with a heart that's full of love, and because He is love, can He love every single one of us here this morning with 100% of His heart this morning? 
In the same way, even though God has many children, He loves each one of you with 100% of His heart. And at this moment, you are loved by God with all of His love as if you were the only person in this whole universe, beloved. Amen? That's the love that God has for you me this morning. Now, what is Jesus touched with? Turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 in your Bibles. What is Jesus touch with? You know as the Bible says. But we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In other words, we have a high priest. And who is this high priest? Jesus. We have Jesus who is touched with the feelings of our weaknesses, our sufferings. Jesus is touched with everything, our weaknesses that we have. And because he can fully feel how we feel, he can truly empathize and he can understand whatever we may be going through this morning. And thus he can help us in whatever time of need that we have. What a wonderful God we serve. Amen? You see, our sympathies are so narrow for normally we only grieve when tragedy strikes our close circle of family and friends, right? And we don't really worry about the rest of the world. But not so with our Savior, right? For he took the whole world of suffering in his arms. And he held it close to his heart. And all the suffering and hurting that humanity has ever felt, he pulled it and it was laid heavily upon his soul. For we told in the Bible that he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows on the cross of Calvary. And this same Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. If he did that before, he would carry today because he's touched with the feelings of your weaknesses and your suffering here this morning. For we serve a loving God who is near us and is not far from us, who does dwell with human flesh, who understands what you're going through. He knows how you feel and what you're thinking right now. That's the God. He is like us more than we think he is this morning. And what a wonderful God we do serve this morning. Now, what did Jesus say happens to him whenever we do something to someone? Turn to Matthew 25, verse 40 in your Bibles. Matthew 25, verse 40. What did Jesus say happens to him whenever we do something to someone? The Bible says, 25, verse 40. The king shall answer and say unto them, this is Jesus speaking in the judgment, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the one of the least of these my brethren, whatever you do to anyone else, guess what? You have done it unto who? Unto me. Whenever we do something to someone, God feels it. True? You see, God feels every act of love and God feels every mistreatment that is done to someone as if it is done directly to himself, right? No matter if that person's evil, no matter if that person's wicked, no matter if that person's your enemy, whatever harm that you do to that person, God feels it, and whatever you do to that person, God feels it if you did it to God himself. Whether pain or suffering you brought upon another person, God feels it as if it is done to himself. 
and even God the Father. Look at your handout here. Desire of Ages in the back, page 356. It says here, not a sigh is breathed. In other words, every sigh that you breathe, you feel that way. Not a pain felt. Every pain that is you feel, not a grief pierces the soul. Every time your soul is pierced with grief, but the throb, this throb, every time you feel with pain, or you're sighing, or you have grief, guess what? This throb vibrates to who? The Father's heart. Not only Jesus, but about, it says right here in Spirit Prophets, it, it, it takes you all the way to the Father's heart. He feels every sigh. He feels every pain. He feels every suffering. He's not secluded. He's not way away, far away, away from us. He's, he's not saying, the Bible doesn't say that he, not, he doesesn't dwell with us. He does dwell with us, beloved, this morning. And he loves us, and he knows everything vibrates, and it hurts the Father's heart this morning. And beloved, even though there are times when you feel that you can't just take it anymore, just remember that your Heavenly Father feels your every pain. What a God we serve. Amen? Now, what will we pattern after? Turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The Bible says, what will we pattern after? The Bible says, God said, let us make man in our, what? Image. After our, what? Likeness. In other words, we were made in the image of God, right? We know that. But not only were we made like God, but guess what? God is like us. Not only are we are like God, but God, that means that if we're like God, then God must be what? Like us also. So except for sin, there are similarities between humanity, right, and divinity here this morning. We're made in the image of likeness of God. Now, we've learned, let's see how, that's, how we relate it. We've learned, inside your handout here, that the glory of God is his character. So we know that God's glory is his character, right? And God has a character. Now, what is a character made out of? Made up of? says here that thoughts and feelings combined make up the moral character. In other words, God's character. In other words, God has thoughts and feelings, right? So not only does God have thoughts, but God also has feelings here this morning, right? God has feelings. And when God has feelings, then God feels. God must feel. He has feelings. God has feelings. And because God is love. You substitute love for God. We know that love feels. See, not only does God think love toward us, but he also feels love toward us, right? He has feelings of love toward us. The same feelings that we experience when we have thoughts of love. Now, I want you to notice how similar God is to us. Turn to Isaiah chapter 41, verse 13 in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 13. What does God say he will do? Isaiah 41, verse 13. Notice the Bible says. The Bible says in 41, verse 13. For I, the Lord thy God, 
will hold your what? Right hand, saying unto you, Fear not, I will help you. What is it that God is seen doing here? God says that he will what? Hold our hand. Now there's something special about holding hands, right? When a couple is in love and they want to walk down the beach, like in Hapuna, they want to hold hands. When a daddy loves his little girl, he wants to take her in the park holding hands. And when a God loves his children, he wants to reveal his closeness holding our hands, beloved. And the holding of hands reveals how intimate and near our God wants to be with you and me this morning. Amen? Our God is like us in the image of, we're made in the image of God. And God wants to hold your hand this morning. He wants to take you to the park. He wants to draw near to you. He is ever near for you this morning. What else does God want to do over us? Turn to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. It's right before Matthew, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. It's four books right before, right before Matthew, before the New Testament. Ze- Zephaniah, Zephaniah, not Zechariah, but Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17. What does God do over us? Notice the Bible says, The Lord your God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over you with what? Singing. He's going to joy over you with singing. Can you imagine that? God takes joy in singing. Can you imagine the God of the universe? He loves to sing. Amen? God, the Almighty God, He loves to sing. And here's a God who just loves to sing. And not only does He love to sing, but He loves to sing in joy over you and over me. You see, music is emotional. And the words that attend music, see, music is this. When we're talking one-on-one, that's me sharing my thoughts. But what music is, it's thoughts rendering with feeling. And that's why music is emotion. It touches the heart. It opens up the heart before the sermon, especially music. It's thoughts rendered with feelings and emotions. It's thoughts and feelings combined. That is what music is. Now, you will see in the Bible that God is a composer and a singer of love songs, right? Song of Solomon. He composes these these, um, poetry and love songs. And then he sings these love songs. And it's because of this that we are sure that God loves us. Why? Because, beloved, God singing love songs. The only people who sing love songs, who are the only people that sing love songs? Those people who are what? In love, right? So the only reason that God is singing love song is because He is in in love with humanity, beloved. And that is why God is singing over us these love songs because He is in love with you this morning. He's in love with me this morning. And the very fact that there is an all-powerful God who loves to sing love songs is very captivating. And it's a very solemn thought to realize that within this tremendously all-powerful God, there still beats a tender heart. 
And beloved, God wants us to hear. You know, how many ever written a love song before? <laughs> Nobody did? How about poetry? A love poem. Now, you're writing these love poems or love songs. Now, you write this love poem to, to someone. What do you want that person to hear? That very love poem you wrote, you wrote, right? The reason why people lo write love songs is because they want the people whom they love to hear those very love songs, right? In other words, the reason why God writes these love songs and he has joy over these love songs over you and me this morning because he wants you to hear these love songs this morning, beloved. Amen? He wants you to hear the, these thoughts rendered with feelings and emotions. He wants you to, to experience his love, his thoughts and feelings of love toward you and me here this morning. That's what God wrote these love songs. And a question that I have for you this morning is this. Are you hearing God's love song to you this morning? Have you been hearing his thoughts and feelings of love? Have you felt his love shed abroad in your hearts? Has it really changed you? Has it really transformed you? Or are you the same person you've been year after year after year? If you really heard these love songs, if you heard these the thoughts rendered with feeling, it would transform your character. Because character is not thoughts and feelings. And as we behold the thoughts, the character, the thoughts and feelings of a God, by beholding we become what? Change. And the thoughts of love and the feelings of love, guess what's going to happen to your character, your thoughts and your feelings? As you look and you hear the love songs of God's thoughts of love and feelings of love, what's going to happen to your character of thoughts? and your character of feeling this morning. It's going to change. You're going to be transformed. You're going to be a new person, a new creature, a, a, a creation, a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're not going to be the same. You're going to be uh, on fire for the Lord. There's going to be movement. The Holy Spirit is going to work in your life. Souls will come to the truth. Your neighbors will be converted. Your children will be saved. Your co-workers will be changed. The church will be on fire. If you've only here the love songs coming down from heaven to you. Do you hear or have you heard his love songs I asked you this morning? Truly, have you heard? Have you been listening? Have you been reading his songs this morning? Beloved, we serve a God who is near us, who is even in our mouth and in our heart, we serve a God who feels our joys and our very pain. We serve a God who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. For we're told that not a sigh is breathed, not a pain that is felt, not a grief that pierces our soul, but that th the throb vibrates to the Father's heart. Beloved, this morning, why don't you come to God and accept His comfort and His love? Why do you still feel that He loves you only when you're good? Why do you continue to stay away from Him because of your unjustifiable fears? Why do you think that right after you sin, you still have to spend days in penitence and weeping before he will love you? Beloved, God is love, and when we experience his perfect love, it will cast out all fear that we have of him. And this morning, I want to know and to feel God's thoughts and feelings of love toward me. How about you? 
I want to know and feel the same love towards everyone else around me. I want, as I behold the thoughts and feelings of love, I want to be changed as I behold the thoughts and feelings of love and the same thoughts and feelings of love to be in me, that people will see the difference. People will know the difference. The lives will be changed. Not a Christianity of just attending church, going through the motions, and not only is there no change in your friends and family around you, but there's no change in you yourself. That is the most miserable experience I could ever be in. Be in. To be in it, going through the motions of church, knowing that my family is lost, my children are lost, my friends are lost, my relatives are lost, just because I wouldn't hear his love songs this morning. Beloved, this is my desire. It's the hunger of my soul to be transformed. Don't you want this? Do you really want to go on the next 20 years in your life and hear a sermon after sermon after sermon and don't want to be changed? Don't want to experience his love? Don't want to have his same thoughts and feelings of love in your life? That's not something I want. I know you want something better. That desire for something better in your heart you feel right now, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. He wants your desire and a hunger for something better. God wants to move. You know, sometimes we need to be humble and broken. Sometimes God's church, and even Honaka here, sometimes we need to be broken and humble. And, and broken down to the foundational level so we can look up to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? And sometimes when we're weak, we may lose people. That is the best time for the church, actually. Because then, you know, I think about Gideon. When he had his, all these soldiers with him, and he said, anyone, who don't, anyone who's not interested, then you may go back. He had just like 10,000 people. And then he said, okay, only those who are faithful may stay. And he only had 300 people. And everyone thinks, hey, we need the numbers. A lot of numbers is what's important. But you know what God really wants? He'd rather have 300 people who are committed to him, or three people that's committed to him, than 100 people who are just playing church. Right? Amen? God would rather have just a few people who really love him. Not by, by mouth only, by talk. Talk is cheap, right? Actions speak louder than words. Talk is cheap. I mean, the world says that to me all the time. Talk is cheap. But God wants the people who are so committed to him that they're living the life. They're doing the ministry God has called them to do. They're serving him. They're active. They're winning souls. There's a change in their life. They're not living for selfish pleasure and glory and money in this world. They really love God. And that's what God wants this morning. I know he wants. And he wants that for this church here. And, you know, I praise God that things happen the way they do. Not because we wanted it. Because we know that that's what God allowed and he knows that's what's best. And praise God, this is what this church needs. Sometimes we need to be broken and weak and humble, right? Amen? Amen. Because that's when we look to Jesus. And I believe that this is a time we need to look to Jesus. And when we look to him, 
eye has not seen, no ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for the Honaka'a seven-day Adventist church this morning. Amen. Your desire this morning is to see and to hear his love song. Would you raise your hand to me this morning? Amen. Let's uh, close this morning with our closing song, 181, in your hymnals. 181. And the song is entitled, Does Jesus Care?